Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the January 2009 Scottish Rite Reporter. It's submitted by Vivian Meitzer, and the title is AF&AM versus F&AM States. In actuality, it does not matter whether you join ancient free and accepted Masons or free and accepted Masons Lodge in the United States. Both AF&AM and F&AM Freemasons trace their allegorical history back to the building of Solomon's Temple. All Freemasons trace their symbolic history to the operative or actual working stonemasons era back when these stonemasons built Solomon's Temple circa 963 BC and the breathtakingly beautiful and highly artistic medieval cathedrals of Europe during the Middle Ages circa 1066 to 1485 AD, some 2500 years later. All Freemasons trace their official or written speculative history back to the formation of the first Grand Lodge in London, England, which was formed in 1717. From 1751 to 1813, there were actually two Grand Lodges in England. The difference in AF and AM versus F and AM states goes back to a disagreement between these two Grand Lodges in London at the time. One group was called the Moderns, but was actually the older of the two English Grand Lodges. The other group was called the Antients, which became Ancients in the AF and AM. The disagreement was later healed around 1880, but by that time there were lodges and grand lodges all over the United States that were descended from one group or the other, and so each group kept their corresponding initials from which they were formed. Although there are small differences within different states regarding ritual wording, most grand lodges in the U.S. recognize each other and treat each other's members as valid Masons. Also, all of the U.S. Grand Lodges are recognized and are recognized by the official Grand Lodges of England, Ireland, Scotland, and the Grand Lodges of most of Europe, Asia, South America, Thailand, India, etc. There are 26 AF and AM states, including Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Idaho, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Texas, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. There are 23 F&AM states, including Alaska, Arkansas, Arizona, California, Washington, D.C., Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Utah, Vermont, Washington, and Wisconsin. Then there is SCAFAM, Ancient Freemasons, and the District of Columbia, which is FAAM, Free and Accepted Masons. The above was collected from the Masonic Lodge of Education. Masonic Education This article is from the Fall 2002 California Freemason Magazine. 
The Compass and the Constitution by John L. Cooper III, Grand Secretary. And John L. Cooper III is now also a past Grand Master. Each September, Masons in California celebrate the U.S. Constitution, that beacon of freedom written in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. It is the oldest such document in existence and is not only the symbol of our freedom, but also its guarantee. After more than 200 years, it still symbolizes that people can govern themselves. The new American Republic was an experiment in self-government. Once it gained independence from Great Britain, very few of the established nations of the day expected the American Revolution to result in anything more than the creation of a collection of tyrannical states. But they were wrong. The freedom won in the revolution endured largely due to the U.S. Constitution and its principle of constitutionalism. We know that many Masons were involved in writing our Constitution. Not so widely known is that the principle on which the Constitution is based is Masonic, one whose symbol is the compass. Masons such as George Washington, who presided over the Constitutional Convention, and Benjamin Franklin, the oldest delegate, knew and understood the use of the compass as a Masonic symbol. They knew that this symbol could be transformed into an instrument of government that would guarantee the liberties won in the hard-fought battles of the American Revolution. The compass is an emblem of the limitation of power. We are taught to use it to keep our passions within due bounds towards all mankind. We are to use it to respect the boundary between our own desires and needs and the desires and needs of others. This is the principle of constitutionalism, the noble words which with the preamble begins. We the people of the United States are followed by clause after clause of limitations on how the people are to exercise those rights and powers for good or for ill. Our freedoms have survived because we have accepted the principle that the powers inherent to the people are expected to be limited. It would be interesting to know if the Masons at the Constitutional Convention explained this to the non-Mason delegates. In all probability, the non-Masons did not know the connection between the Masonic teachings and what they were trying to create. But we may be thankful that the Masons understood the use of the compass and that constitutionalism, as well as the Constitution, became the cornerstone of our nation. Respect for the rule of law and respect for the Constitution are Masonic ideals. It is therefore most fitting that we honor the Constitution of the United States each September and honor constitutionalism every time we place the compass on our altar when a Masonic Lodge is at work. The following article is from an issue of the Fraternal Review from the Southern California Research Lodge. However, I don't actually know what issue. I have stacks and stacks and stacks of papers um, before they went to a magazine, and it does not list on the individual pages what episode or what issue it's from. But regardless, we're going to share this article, The Ornaments of the Lodge, written by Brother Lorne Urquhart. Corinthian Lodge No. 63, Grand Lodge of Nova Scotia. As stated in the third section of the Entered Apprentice Degree, the ornaments of a lodge are the mosaic pavement, the indented tessel, and the blazing star. The mosaic or checkered pavement is a graphic composition of black and white squares situated opposite one another and enclosed by a border or skirting known as the tessellated border or indented tessel within constant view of the blazing star. These ornaments represent the ground floor of King Solomon's temple. The black and white squares are emblematic of human life, checkered with good and evil, success and failure. These ornaments, always in plain view, 
are a reminder to be vigilant and by virtue of being freeborn in command of our actions, doing our level best to make the right and proper decisions in our daily life so we do not adversely affect others. The indented tessle is situated to protect the inner checkered floor from disruption as a rope or barrier served operative masons with their designs on the floor in days of yesteryear. This is why in the process of doing floor work, we square the carpet. By doing this, we are respecting the indented tessel guarding the perimeter of the checkered floor, emblematic of the manifold blessings and comforts which constantly surround us and which we hope to enjoy by a firm reliance on the divine providence which is represented by the blazing star. The blazing star, sometimes situated in the ceiling above the checkered pavement, is often displayed as a multi-pointed star. This star may be represented in the east, superimposed with the letter G. Some have suggested that during the entered apprentice degree, we consider the light illuminating the candidate's mind to be emanating from the blazing star. This star is sometimes referred to as Solomon's star, Sirius the dog star, and sacred star. Many lodges do not have the checkered pavement and are thus the mosaic pavement is represented symbolically. Squaring the floor during lodge work not only compensates to some degree, but also adds dignity and beauty to the work. Years ago, at a time when operative masons were actively engaged in the construction of large and architecturally beautiful edifices, it was common for them to be housed in a temporary structure close to or on the intended building site. On the floor of this temporary structure, the master builder or architect would, once he had perfected his designs on his table board, transfer these completed designs and method of construction techniques by drawing them in the sand or clay floor. This process allowed the workers in stone to receive proper instruction for their labors. Once the designs were drawn on the floor by the operatives, caution was taken to ensure their visibility by erecting a barrier or rope that would maintain them until such time as the project was required to be upgraded. Once the floor designs were completed on the construction site, they would then be erased, leaving an unmarked surface to begin anew. During the early years of organized speculative Freemasonry, lodge meetings were held in taverns and hotels and other such places that would accommodate them. During this period of time, a practice of utilizing the floor for instructive purposes was employed. The common method of laying out the stations, etc. was with chalk and or charcoal, as well as to illustrate lectures being worked. Eventually, to avoid obliteration of their applied work of the floor, the instructive information was painted on cloth. Henceforth, they were called floor cloths or carpets, and sometimes hung on walls or spread upon a table for viewing purposes. Sometime during the evolution of speculative Freemasonry, it was necessary to find a more suitable and positive way to better educate the brethren, and so the form of the floor cloth was transferred to more visual boards that have become known as tracing boards. It is worth noting here that these boards did not necessarily replace the floor cloth, as some lodges utilized both tracing boards and floor cloths at the same time during meetings. At some point after the speculative masons had removed the floor cloth from the use in the floor area, that area of the floor was then covered with the mosaic or checkered pavement that we see today. Tracing boards are comprised of three individual and distinct canvas or wooden boards of a size large enough to be viewed by all brethren within the lodge room so they receive proper instruction. These boards were sometimes very elaborate and some may have been expensive. However, they all followed the same themes of illustrations and symbols as per the particular degree they identified with. In the entered apprentice degree, the board has a tessellated border or skirting which encloses the placement of illustrations associated with that particular degree. 
There is a popular misconception that the tracing boards are mere devices meant to assist us in ritualistic performances of the memorized lectures. Thus, within Freemasonry, the boards serve to help us better convey the inner meaning of the ritual. Tracing boards, as we recognize them today, date initially from 1820. Over the years, there has been, and still is, some confusion over tracing boards and trestle boards. In some Masonic jurisdictions, these boards are referred to as being the same. The trestle board has always been defined as, quote, a board for the master workman to draw his designs upon, end quote. In operative masonry, the trestle board is of vast importance. It was on such an implement that the genius of the ancient masters worked out those problems of architecture that have reflected an unfading luster on their skill. Once the problems were dealt with on the trestle board, the information would then be drawn in the sand or clay floor area for the workers in stone to ponder its makeup and approach the construction. In the Masonic ritual, the speculative mason is reminded that, as the operative artist erects his temporal building in accordance with the rules and designs laid on the trestle board of the master workman, so should he erect that spiritual building, of which the material is a type in obedience to the rules and desires, the precepts and commands, laid down by the grand architect of the universe in those great books of nature and revelation which constitute the spiritual trestle board of every Freemason. The trestle board is then the symbol of the natural and moral law. The trestle board is the stand, easel, the holder, the device used by the operative masters to create the proper design and fit for each process of the construction feature before drawing it in the clay or sand floor area of their temporary quarters to teach the workmen what to do and how to do it. In speculative masonry, the trestle board is used by the master to draw his meeting plans and agenda upon. It is worth mentioning that sometimes floor cloths were designed specifically to be raised as boards, and because of the awkwardness in size, they would be suspended by one or more trestles. So this word trestle may have been taken out of context, and perhaps this is one reason why some confusion has originated. The following article is from the November 2015 Southern California Research Lodge Fraternal Review. What is the Meaning of Worshipful? by John White. In Freemasonry, there are degrees of worshipfulness. An installed Master of the Lodge is referred to as Worshipful Master. An installed Grand Master is referred to as Most Worshipful Grand Master. His deputy is Right Worshipful, and his lesser Grand Lodge officers may be very worshipful. Why? What is the meaning of the term worshipful? According to Albert G. Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, the term to worship originally meant to pay the honor and reverence which are due to one who is worthy. Later it came to mean greatly respected. The verse in the King James Bible which says, Honor thy father and thy mother, Matthew 19.19, was rendered in the earlier Wycliffe Bible as Worship thy father and thy mother. The mayor of a city in England is still addressed as your worship, purely as a title of honor or respect. Shaping your worth. How does one become worthy? The answer can be found in the etymological roots of the word worship. It comes from Old English and means worth shape or shaping your worth. To express that idea in modern English, to worship means to shape or develop your own worth or worthiness and thus become a person who deserves respect, honor, and reverence. Through personal effort, you shape yourself into someone whose mind is pure, whose character is free from flaw, and whose life is stainless, just as a piece of stone or ashlar is shaped by an artisan or master mason to be flawless in its final form as a work of art. Holding a high office does not in itself bestow a condition of worthiness on the office holder. 
The honor and respect is inherent in the office, not the office holder. Just think, for example, of some public officials in government whose activities have been marked by scandal, corruption, and impeachment. They have been unworthy of the honor and respect accorded their office. So how do you shape your worth? How do you create your worthiness? How do you become worthy of respect, honor, and reverence? Their traditional means are spiritual practices, prayer, meditation, emulation of saintly behavior, study of holy scripture and moral precepts, cultivation of the mind, performing charitable works, demonstrating civic virtue, and anything else which helps you to overcome the selfish tendencies and egotistic attitudes recognized by sacred traditions as sinful because they are harmful to yourself and others. Masonry adds, you shape your worth by living in accordance with the principles of our fraternity, morality, charity, and brotherly love. A worshipful person reflects God. Thus, in the deepest sense, a worshipful person is someone whose life has been an act of worship or worth shaping. The only legitimate object of worship, of course, is God. Worshipping anything else, such as wealth, fame, power, or social status, would be worshipping a false god. So a worshipful person has worth because his or her life reflects God, the source of all goodness, beauty, truth, and justice. The worshipful person has so aligned his or her life with God that divine attributes shine through ever more strongly and clearly. As the person draws ever closer to God, he or she is ever more God-filled and God-realized. The person demonstrates the truth of the saying, It is better to preach a sermon with your life than with your lips. That is true holiness, true worthiness. In the most worthy or holy people, that shining through of God, that light or radiance of God's presence, is said to be literally visible as a brilliant energy field surrounding the body, especially the head. That is why in works of art, saints and sages are depicted with halos. A halo is an artistic stylization of a bright golden light which surrounds holy people and is especially intense around their head. It is a clearly perceivable indication that the person is worthy of honor and reverence. It is the sign of extreme holiness for saints and sages, divinity, saviors, or an order of creation beyond the human level, angels. In a related aspect, royalty is traditionally accorded reverence and even worship. Members of royalty wear crowns. Why? Like an artist's stylization, a crown represents a halo. The divine right of kings to rule meant, theoretically speaking, that monarchs were superior human beings with self-evident godliness which qualified them as worthy to lead their people. Addressing them as your majesty was meant quite literally as in you reflect the majesty of God. There was no difference between a spiritual leader and a political leader. Those who led the people in either sphere of activity were one and the same. That position is still present in a theocracy where the nation or organization is headed by someone who is regarded as divine or an agent of divinity, such as the Pope, the Dalai Lama, the Emperor of Japan, and the Mullahs of Iran and Afghanistan. And so although this is printed in the November 2015 Southern California Research Lodge Fraternal Review, it states at the end that it's actually from Connecticut Freemasons, Volume 11, Number 1, May 2015, the Grand Lodge of Connecticut, AF and AM, page 20. An excerpt from the upcoming book Freemasonry's Secrets, The Theory and Practice of Making Good Men Better by Brother John White, Temple Lodge, Number 16. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. 
We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.